This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Art. I'm Kaveh Rafi, and today I'm delighted to join Catherine Nahidi to discuss her recent book, The Cultural Politics of Art in Iran, Modernism, Exhibitions, and Art Production, published in 2023 by Cambridge University Press. Nahidi is postdoctoral researcher at the University of Graz, Austria. She holds a PhD from the Free University of Berlin in Art History 2021. She studied art history, German literature, and Middle Eastern studies at Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. In 2020, she was a research fellow at the Günther Oker Institute in Schwerin. She has taught at the University of Graz, the University of Osnabrück, Germany, and the LMU of Munich. Her article on Iranian modernism have been published in academic journals, including Kritisch Berichte, Estetlich Studies, and Artless Bulletin. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the show. Hello, Kawe. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, um, let's, let me start off by asking you about yourself and what inspired you to write this book. Okay, um, I started, uh, I studied art history in Munich in Germany, and uh, the inspiration for this book is closely connected to my academic uh, background. In my master thesis um, back then, I analyzed uh, Shirin Neshat's feature film, Women Without Men from 2019 within the broader discourse of Iranian exile and diaspora. And um, through this analysis, I encountered that there is a narrative that was present in art historiographic practices about non-Western artists, especially during the early 2000s. And uh, most of these texts work with the idea that non-Western migrant artists drew inspiration from their like pre-modern cultural heritage and merged it with Western postmodern means of expression, such as video, art, and so on. And um, after I submitted my master thesis, I asked myself, uh, what happened before? Does a modern Iranian art scene exist uh, prior to the contemporary era? And how does it look like? So I studied at an art history department with Islamic art history. So it seemed for me quite natural to go to the library and look in this department for Iranian modernist art. 
But on the shelves, I discovered like survey works on Persian art, such as Arthur Upham Poe's uh, survey of Persian art from prehistoric times to the present, and so on. And then there was hardly any material on modern Iranian art. And um, of course, as I further uh, researched, this indicates a major, um, yeah, a, a major thing in uh, art history that non-Western modern art is not, was at least at that part, at that time, not considered part of the global canon, which the reasons for this are that modern art is often perceived as a Western um, thing. So, um, and at that time, I delved deeper into the research. I did find some uh, sources, most of the sources were about um, Sarah Honey. So I decided to do a dissertation about Sarah Honey and uh, worked on a abstract and um, was accepted in a PhD program with the name uh, Other Modernities in Switzerland. And um, it was quite inspiring working in this project because we were all working on non-Western modernist arts. Okay, great, great. Uh, something very much striking about the book is how it's structured. Like chronologically, the book seems, uh, you know, to follow this reverse order. Uh, starting off with the recent exhibition uh, of, on Iranian modernism in North America and Europe, uh, then move to a discussion around Tehran Museum of Contemporary Art, its legacy, how, you know, uh, its whole history, uh, you know, since the 1970s. And then, as you mentioned, Sapahane comes after, and this very much this important artistic, uh, uh, this is a question, the artistic school, and that's, you tackle it, right? It's the style, what it is uh, during the 1960s and 70s. And then uh, you finish up the book uh, with uh, the Fighting Rooster Association and Jomane Khus Jangi in 1950s. So what, what, uh, why the book structured this way? Uh, and to me, it's interesting. It's kind of like excavating, like layers, this kind of tectonic layers of the history of modernism in Iran. What's the reason? Uh, behind this uh, structure? Well, um, I think for me, it is um, it is very, I'm convinced that we as historians, I work from the contemporary. Yeah, this is my, my contemporary uh, perspective. And I did not live during the 1950s. So I started with the recent exhibition and because I could observe all the discourses around it. And um, this was also... A result of my field research when I first went to Iran and um, I did some interviews because at that time I wanted to work on Sarah Hone and I interviewed some artists, Sadek Tabrisi, Parvis Tanavuli, I also met Risa Bangis and uh, Kurushi Shigaran and I was so curious what they would tell me about Sarah Hone. But for them, it was not important at all. It was like, mm, well, we don't know if it ever existed. And I worked with blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And But Sarah Rune, we were not a group. We don't know who belongs to this group and so on. And then it became really difficult. And especially when I talked to um, Kuro Shishigaran, who had who has this like explicit political artworks with his river posters that he did during the revolution. And when I talked to him, he said, 
oh, you should not understand my artwork in a political sense. And I was like, yeah, but you went out at night and put your posters on the walls and so on. And he was like, yeah, like, well, you know, it's more about humanity and so on. And this was the moment when I understood that the knowledge production happens from today and uh, with the realities of the Islamic Republic. And I also met an Iranian exiled artist, Behrouz Heshmat, who's living in Vienna. And he told me that they were actually very much engaged in the political discourse of the 1960s and 1970s, but it did the revolution and in particular the aftermath of the revolution did not fulfill their leftist goals. And many of them are disappointed and feel ashamed. And it's also a question who is collecting Iranian artworks, modern art. So this is more the diaspora. And um, so there's a particular knowledge production about this time, which is closely connected to politics of memory. And this is why I started with the recent exhibitions um, that happened when I started my research. Yeah, perhaps this is a, a good start to discuss uh, politics, right, of these two recent exhibitions. One is Iran Modern, held at the Asian Society in New York in 2013. And another one is this the exhibition titled The Tehran Modern, uh, which was expected to be presented uh, works from the Tehran Museum of uh, Contemporary Art uh, in Berlin and Rome in 2016, but then it canceled. Uh, maybe you can tell us more about, about these two exhibitions, how they construct the, this history of modernist art in Iran. Yeah. The first exhibition, Iran Modern, is it's a great exhibition. It showed a lot of important works and also uh, with uh, the curators, uh, Laila Diba and Ferishtet Aftari, they did a... Um, um, their research is very important for Iranian modern art. But um, when I studied the exhibition catalog and the artworks that they displayed, I figured out that... Um, only one artwork was from Iran. I mean, I know that it's due to the sanctions, but they tried to reinscribe Iranian modernism in the global canon of um, modernist art. So what does this mean? We tell a story of Iranian modernism with artworks that are just in the US and in Europe. And the huge collection, which is in Tehran, so that's not part of the narrative and not part of the history. And also when I studied the writings in the um, in the catalog, I realized that this is also very close connected to the Iranian diaspora and uh, their specific um, experiences that they had. For example, when I think back that they had a work by Reza Mafi where he writes Allahu Akbar, uh, God is great, which was very important slogan during the revolution. He was a leftist artist and uh, illustrated leftist magazines to say in the exhibition catalog that it's more like a formalist experiment with modernity and calligraphy is is not enough. So it became clear to me that they that this exhibition constructed a specific narration. The question is also who was the audience? Because I mean, Iranians from Iran cannot travel to New York for one exhibition. 
And so I figured out it where it functions more in the discourse of the diaspora, where you address the host society to show, look, how modern we are, we were, we had this golden age of secularism and so on. And this exhibition functioned for me more in this context. And um, the Berlin exhibition was really interesting because I could experience it more or less firsthand. I had some friends who were working in this exhibition and I observed German media. And it was really, they were, <laughs> what they wrote, it was like deeply Orientalist and colonialist. They talked about um, the queen's treasure. So Faradiba was in the center of the attention. And it sounded as if they had just had to go to Tehran, take off the dust of the Islamic Republic of Iran, and then show the uh, artworks to a bigger European uh, audience. And um, it was really interesting because I thought, okay, this is German media, but they also published a catalog uh, for ex for a cancelled exhibition and um the um, one representative of the as it's called in german stiftung preussischer kulturbesitz foundation of prussian uh, heritage his text was very problematic so when you go to this text he operates with very orientalist and colonialist stereotypes which can even be could even be connected to discourses like Samuel Huntington and the clash of civilizations and so on. And with uh, like this entities of West and East, which are not, yeah, which one cannot bring together and that the cancellation of the exhibition was actually Iran's troubled relationship to being modern and that a country like an Islamic country cannot be modern. And it was for me then uh, when I looked at my Instagram feed and Facebook, I saw the discussions that were going on in Iran. And it had, had nothing to do with modernity or the troubled relationship to modernity. There were demonstrations and so on going on because the German side did not um, communicate or publish the list of artworks, neither did the Iranian side. And this exhibition was seen as a, um, it happened after the nuclear agreement in 2015. So it was more, uh, yeah, a part of cultural politics, European cultural politics, where art is a kind of soft power. And the, discor the discourse and the discussions in Iran were totally different. They they asked and demanded more, um, yeah, like a more transparent and democratic uh, approach. They wanted to see, okay, show us what is in the collection, because they don't even have a uh, re they don't have a exhibition, uh, they don't have a catalog of the artworks there. So it's not clear what is in the museum and what is not in the museum. And this is what um, the artists actually demanded. And um, there was a huge gap between uh, the official German discourse and the discussions that were taking place in Iran. Yeah, but th th what you're saying is very interesting. Especially, I remember this whole debate about that. Uh, and 
Yeah, that's fascinating. You mentioned the book, and uh, it's it's great that this kind of like yeah, this kind of like in Iran, you see most of the artistic community, like as you mentioned, like concern about transparency, about the mismanagement, very much about the mismanagement of of the museum, which still continues today, and there is always this kind of backlash. The recent event about the garden in the. Uh, Tehran Museum of Contemporary Arts is continuation the same, like this kind of how you can uh, make you know the management responsible, right, from what they are doing, and they be more transparent uh, versus uh, exactly what you see from from mostly like this Western uh, exhibition, very much uh to the direction about more than like cultural politics like this idea about like iranian culture and modernization they are not com- compatible like the trouble with islam and then modern but in different way as we discuss this alternative modern idea very much this continuation of third worldist uh, idea uh this is this is maybe great to start uh, to start to uh discuss more about like the history, how the museum uh, came came to be, uh, what was this the, the behind like the politics behind this project of the museum, uh, and then thinking about this legacy perhaps uh, you know uh, in a broader history before the revolution and uh, moving to after revolution. You discussed uh, mostly about the after revolution, but may ha- may- maybe we can also dive in uh, into the politics of art, specifically during the 1970s. When, I think in 1977, right? Uh, the museum was inaugurated. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think this is the point. The museum was only inaugurated in 1977. So it was only, yeah, one year under... Um, it was only one year open or one and a half and then the revolution started and this is the interesting point that it was only closed for two weeks during the revolutionary struggle and then it reopened. I mean at that time when they started building the museum or at least had the plans, the plans go back uh, further than the 1970s, they started in the 1960s and there are all these rumors who yeah, who had the first idea? And I think there's kind of a struggle between Kamran Diba and uh, Iran, the painter Iran Daroudi, who is often mentioned as uh, going to the Queen and telling her, "Oh, we need a space." But I think this is the this is the important point that modernist art was at the beginning in the 1950s and 60s. It was not um, so much institutionalized. So this started only later, and this was um, the cultural politics of uh, Faradiba, because this was not so part of the male cultural politics. But it also, I think, it functioned in particular with modernist arts in the broader discourse of this Cold War modernism, where modernist art could be connected to this kind of universal language of Western capitalism and so on. And um, I think um, the Pahlavi um, government realized at that time that this is also kind to a way to connect to Western nations and to uh, yeah, can work as a symbol for Iran's successful modernization and secularization and to construct this kind of similarities to Western nations. 
Yeah, which is very interesting. Uh, very much you connected to uh, what you discuss about Iran modern and this also uh, the, the how the how the exhibition in general pictured this kind of modern Iran uh, prior to revolution, which all of a sudden, right, yeah. <laughs> ceased to exist. Yes. And then yeah, yeah. It seems there is a continuation. I'm, 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 am I correct in 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 thinking that perhaps this continuation of this narrative. I think to some extent, like the book also argues, uh, convinced me like, yeah, there is this kind of the beginning of this narration very much uh, constructed by the Pahlavi. Yeah, yeah, um, I think so too. When I look um, at the, like, for example, the German press was very much impressed by the Shah and connected it to its own royal past and so on and the own glory before the Second World War. So I think they were quite successful. The Pahlavis were quite successful to communicate their ideas internationally. And um, they were also highly welcomed internationally. And um, yeah, I don't know why this idea is so persistent, because when you look at the actual artworks, you can see that um, they are very much... Um, that they incorporate Iranian heritage or Iranian topics and so on. So that it's not just a global modernism. And in particular, when you look, for example, at Hossein Sendiroudi's early work, where he's de depicting the Battle of Kabbalah and so on. I mean, when of course you can say this is like interesting in terms of formalist uh, experiments, maybe with woodcut, similar to expressionism and so on. But I think we cannot, we should not overlook the, uh, yeah, the actual representations that we see. Two questions I have right now. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, one is more about politics and also another very much about the formalism you mentioned, because uh, the basic tenets of your, your argument about the historiography of modernism in Iran is this very much formalist, uh, you know, perhaps overestimation of formalism uh, when it comes uh, to art and how this it's blurred, right, the politics uh, of art. The interesting, like the perception of the Pahlavi and how the Pahlavi, you know, mirrored itself as this modernizer and this very much line with Western and seems as also aligned with this, this Cold War politics, right? The Pahlavi stand along with the U.S. Uh, to some extent. And then, uh, you know, toward the end of the, the Pahlavi regime, uh, they started to, you see, it started to, to the specific the different narrative, the narrative of uh, very much interested in non-aligned movements or uh, it's trying to distance itself. Maybe we can come to this question too, but uh, I don't know which which question you want to tackle first. Um, I, I start with the second question. I mean, like when when this like visual, 
regime and image production of the Pahlavi time is really interesting. So I'm talking about images that traveled the world, Faradiba in latest fashion trends, the royal family in latest fashion trends, and so on. And this is something like, or there is this uh, Ajam collective article about the women in miniskirts, which is always seen as, yeah, progress and westernization and so on. And um I mean, um, I know it from my own family history that my mom was German and went lived in Iran, told me like, oh, the miniskirts, they were so short, they were shorter than in in Europe. And I was like, yeah, but your mother-in-law, did she wear a miniskirt? And she was like, no, of course not. She wore the chador. And so this is like this idea that we measure progress with the nakedness of women or... Uh, um, yeah, beauty standards and so on. But I think that they established a very powerful um, image uh, representation. And um, this whole idea of modernization was, of course, in line with Cold War politics and trying to be Western and so on. But I think that the idea of institutionalization and instrumentalization Pahlavi Iran became very powerful. And when they saw that the discourse, that the critique of the regime became stronger, they just institutionalized it and said, oh, this is part of us. So, so are we. And um, this was their strategy against the opposition uh, to, yeah, to uh, detangle all kind of criticism. And I think this is also what they did in the arts because um, there's in uh, Grigor Tallinn's book, she has this chapter about uh, uh, about Faradiba and her um, archi- uh, and the, her, uh, her politics of architecture and um, where she, where she describes that the Shah was actually not so much in line with modernist artists. There were also many dissidents and oppositional forces, and that she somehow managed to institutionalize the dissident voices in the art world. And I think this is also what actually then later happened, which is called, which was called in the book by Ali Mirzi Pasi, quiet, a quiet revolution, when um, the Pahlavi monarch he turned to spirituality to yeah as an answer of this west oxification discourse and to show uh, the iranian population we are not westernized we're actually yeah very iranian okay catherine um it's great uh what i'm thinking this idea about this formalism uh in the historiography uh, of modernist art in Iran on one hand and also this idea of Garbzad in this very much hotly debated right discourse um, during the time is there any connection between these two why we see very much the historiography uh, even at uh, you know back for 1970s very much tend to be formalist uh, dealing with this art with you, your book greatly shows that's very much influenced right, by this uh, discourse of Garb Zadegi. Hmm. I think that the um, 
that the problem is that formalism is still a very powerful paradigm in the study of uh, modern art. So wherever you go, um, it's it's formalist. And only recently, um, new research tries to distance itself from formalist uh, art history. I mean, I, I just went to a conference about expressionism and it became clear to me that there are only few people who who try to introduce something new, a non-formalist art history, but specifically with the so-called modern and the uh, established art history like expressionism and so on is still considered, is still done in a very formalist way. And I think this is closely connected to, uh, to concepts of modernity that are behind this. And um, there's this concept of modernity that it's a Western invention. In Iran, it was an imitation. And I mean, I said it before, I don't know if it, it's recorded that when I went to Iran and talked to art critics, like from Hefe Honarmand or other places, they were like, okay, you post-colonial scholars, you're just too positive. Yeah, you think there is something behind it, but what if it's just in Iran a failure of modernity? What if we did not understand it? And when you go to uh, post-colonial theory, so there's such a strong connection between modernity and colonialism. And this is also like when you read uh, Walter Mignolo or Enrique Dussel, who say that, um, who argue that you cannot even decolonize modernity because colonialism is the essential part of it. And so I find it interesting, especially in the with the uh, example of Iran, because I think thinkers like Jalal Ali Ahmad actually try to decolonize it or try to find alternative uh, concepts of modernity. And I think if we pursue a very formalist uh, approach of um, Iranian modernist art, and it's closely connected to the concept of modernity that stands behind it. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you mentioned Jalal Ahmad. And the book did a great job explaining like Jalal Ahmad's vision. Uh, because uh, both Jalal Al Ahmad and Simin Danishwar, I mean, both the key figures, uh, in especially from 1960s uh, onward, uh, in Pahlavi art, and yeah. they left really a ma mark on our art. Like Simin was uh, teaching uh, at the College of uh, Decorative Art, uh, Jalal was cre art critic, and they were also patron. Like they were supporting artists, they were really uh, uh, advocating for this modernism. And very much artists like having a conversation. You mentioned Bahman Muhasses, like in, very much in conversation with Dal Ahmad. And this is interesting to me, and this is really baffling for me. Because I tackle the same issues when I was writing this my dissertation, like where is Allah Ahmad and see me? Like these two, like two key figures, and nobody really like talking about their approach to the art. Like 
one one thing with Simin is, is very interesting. Like Simin, uh, you know, translated many artists writing book taught art history, and also uh, she published articles very much drawing on different important intellectuals from Luca to Schiller. And she's, it's amazing that she's not very much mentioned in this historical account of Iranian modernism. Yeah, I, I, I heard that she wrote a book about aesthetics and I tried to find it, but I was not successful, unfortunately. And I also tried to find some students who went to Jalal oh. Ali Ahmad's lectures. Yeah, that's, that's but uh, at the very end of my field research, I had one person, but he wasn't really sure and so on. And he wanted to tell me, but this is like, this is a very important point that you are mentioning. This is the case of missing archives. And um well, again, I don't know. I mean, there are some articles, uh, Ruin Pakbas and also other art historians uh, said that uh, Jalal Ali Ahmad's texts were nonsense texts about art history and about art criticism and so on. But uh, for me, it was also like really, this was, even when I when I read uh, Darb Sadegi, I was surprised that I found stuff about Gauguin and um, Orientalist knowledge production and how Gauguin, how that he was in the colonies and so on. And these ideas I can only find now in art history. And Jalal Ali Ahmad wrote it back in 1962 in his very first book, uh, in his uh, important essay. essay. And so um, when I found his collections, I mean, this would be so great if somebody not me, <laughs> would work on his other texts about architecture, about theater, and so on. There is so much uh, which could be so rich. But I think it is also because Anjalol Ali Ahmad did not see what happened to his concept of Gharb Sadigi. He died before, long time before it uh, all evolved. And so I think this is also because he's very much connected today uh, to the Islamic Republic. They institutionalized him. So like halfway, not really, but still not all of his texts and books, but some of them. And uh, so I just guess, but correct me if I'm wrong, that this is the reason why people do not want to engage with his texts. Yeah, I mean, with the current situation, all I meant is, very much criticized uh for he for his stance uh and and also like i think some of these critics i mean make sense like he was very much engaged with uh junger for example uh and you know like junger is very much has this i mean fascistic tendency i mean he was a fascist uh and he uh, also uh all ahmed very much also influenced by heidegger yeah just uh, to, to some extent yeah yeah and this is also like uh, especially in the german and european context heidegger is with his national socialist uh past also um yeah some of them seem really critical yeah, I mean, in this sense, like I see like leftist critics of Al Ahmad, but on the other hand, in general, public view of Al Ahmad very much aligned with the authentic idea, the discourse of authenticity of Islamic Republic. People has this kind of critical uh, stance, like they the kind of like conflating. I don't think that's 
quite right to some extent. I mean, Al Ahmed didn't leave to you know see what's happening, like you know, uh, to this like the rise of Islamists and what's gonna happen. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, his art, his texts about art are not necessarily like all are not like for me as a researcher educated in Germany, you know, I had very clear expectations how an archive should look like and how an art historiographical text should look like. And all my expectations, they were not fulfilled at all <laughs> in the context of Iran. I mean, my first interview with this, I think Tabrizi, he told me about his dreams and the air that he's breathing. And I was like, Oh my goodness, how should I ever use this in my PhD dissertation? And uh, something similar happened to Jalal Ali Ahmad's texts. You need a lot of time to read them, to understand. Then he's using a lot of metaphors and tropes and so on. And to make sense of it, it's very difficult. So um, they are not very accessible in some way. But I think on the other hand, they are so valuable sources in a field where we have so less sources. Yeah, this is this very important. Like I, I feel the same. Like, like specifically like dealing with the Tehran Museum of Canterbury. You expect like they have really a trim. I mean, uh considerable archive right like with the whole whole resources and you find nothing like it's 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 baffling me like how like they even they don't have really proper website like you know you can access some of these works and it's it's just amazing that how it works this was my first idea was like i go to iran collect books go home and write my dissertation but unfortunately, this was not the case. And I expected at least that the Terra Museum of Contemporary Art would have a library, an archive, anything. And the Sarah Rone exhibition catalog from 1977, I found it in Munich in the library. And I think it's one of the few libraries uh, who has this catalog. And I couldn't find it in Iran. Or for example, I was thinking, I found out that also Ali Shariati wrote about art a whole book. So I tried to find it in Tehran and I went to I went to uh, the bookstores and we asked everywhere around and finally I ordered it from Amazon. I, I find like most of what I was looking in Gray Foundation than like in Iran. This is just you know, amazing that. Perhaps that's well, also yeah, why course, you yeah. get more like, you know, a scholarship based on the collections here, right? Like it's really not convenient and it's like the, any access or anything like you can search in Iran, like even like a national library, you expect like you can get, I mean, this is really difficult to get there. Like it's really for, for even like Iranians, <laughs> like there are lots of background checks. It's just like amazing that made the inf information uh, inaccessible uh, and there are also lack of archive and so forth, as you mentioned. So, No, I had a, I had a dear friend who helped me and showed me around and um, I have an Iranian passport, but I don't have the Kartimili and I needed the Kartimili to go into the National Library. So he brought his brother's <laughs> ID card and I entered with his brother's card and I don't know 
I mean, it was really surprising that they didn't say anything, but at that time they were like really nice and open and I could uh, scan most of the things, but it was like, okay, we're going to scan you the Fighting Rooster magazine, but it took like two, three days. And again, again, I had to come again and ask them, oh, could you scan it? No, not yet. The person is sick. Okay, come tomorrow. So I came tomorrow and they're like, oh, he's not there. You have to wait two hours. And so we were sitting in the garden waiting two hours. And so it's like, um, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which, which which is like, you know, unfortunate. Uh Anyhow, um, so yeah, but but I want really liked about the books, like you, you, I mean, it's 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 shown in book, like how much effort, right, put in like to to get to, to access to some of this archive, and all and present this to to the readers. Uh, something I think that it's lost, right, because we really did, there is somewhere, but you know, without any access and translation and so forth and discussion we really don't know and it's great like one one aspect as i mentioned like this uh the book very much tackled with the uh barbs idea of all ahmad and how all ahmad's figure like influenced which was great i i really love that chapters maybe to 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 go back to uh art uh during the pahlavi era and elephant in room, uh, so what was this exhibition? When when was this exhibition? And what's this, you know, uh very much the idea uh behind Sakahone? What is the movement, the school, a style, uh, and so forth? Maybe you can you know tell us more about Sakahone. Yeah. Well, I don't know what it is. I don't want to define it. I rather deconstruct it. Um, it's the most powerful concept in Iranian art history. It is seen as so the peak of Iranian modernism, where they finally um, were mature enough and went beyond imitations. So, um, as I said before, when I talked to the artists, there was no common concept of Sarajone. And there was no manifesto. So, um, I researched the first article and um, I was lucky because this book about Karim Imami came out uh, I think in 2014 or 2016 and um, with his texts so um, he actually wrote a very short text in I think it was 1962 or 1963 uh, about Sarajone and it was a, yeah a loosely grouped uh, association, whatever. And in 1970, and the artists, I mean, there is this kind of foundation myth when Paris Tanavuli and Hossein Senderudi uh, went to Shahre and uh, took the uh, took the prints from there and came home and uh, very excited and Sandy Rudi was working on a print and this was the birth of Sarahone. And so, and all the other artists seem to be loosely grouped around these um, two artists. But uh, when you look at, our, at the written sources, we have uh, Karim Imami's text. So Paris Tanavoli told me, oh, we were actually never a group, even Sandy Rudi and me, we did not continue our uh, collaboration. And uh, so I started researching who was Karim Imami. 
Then I find I found out he translated Chalol Ali Ahmad into English. So also some of his novels uh, and so on. And he was also English teacher uh, at the College of Decorative Arts at that time. And it was fascinating for me that he coined this idea of Sarakhone only two or three days after Khomeini gave his famous speech in Rome, where he compared the Shah to Yazid. And um, Imami comes up with Sarakhone, which is also closely tied to Shiite history, this public uh, fountain, so that no believer should ever suffer from thirst anymore. And it's such a coincidence in such a short time so that I would say uh, Karim Imami was engaged in this anti-colonial struggle. And then we have Sarah Hune and Parvis Tanabuli, who was a close friend of um, Abby Reed Gray and also connected to the Queen and so on. And I think this is how the myth of Sarah Hune went on. And only in 1977, they had this one exhibition about Sarah Hune. And the funny thing is that this whole institutionalization about Sarah Hune did not necessarily happen before the revolution. It was only in 1989 when Kamran Diba wrote in this book about Islamic uh, modern art that it's a spiritual pop art. And with this idea of spiritual pop art, um, Sarah Hune could be inscribed into this global canon of modernism. So we can say, oh, it's pop art. We all know Andy Warhol and um, uh, Rauschenberg and so on. And um, and I think it was more in the early 2000s and the globalization of the art world and art history that Sarah Hune emerged. And when, you, for example, when you look at Tana Bouli and Sandy Rudi, they were not that successful before that. Only in the early 2000s, the prices went high and they were sold very well at uh, Sotheby's and Christie's and um, especially in Dubai and so on. And I think this deeply influenced um, the art historiographical processes. Yeah, I'm happy that you mentioned this uh, very much institutionalization of Sapakhune, uh, which, which is interesting. Uh, when 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 it started, it also this seems that Pahlavi had some ideas about institutionalization when they had this exhibition uh, of Sakakune uh, during the inauguration of the museum. Uh, perhaps uh, what we can make of this Pahlavi's vision of that, specifically uh, Queen Farah uh, as a you know major patron of art. Uh, in 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 terms of you know this this institutionalization, and and perhaps connected to this is another figure that you mentioned, Abivit Gray, uh, who also supported many Sakahune artists and brought some of these uh, works to to the U.S. and also and perhaps played part in in later institutionalization in the West here. Uh, uh, maybe we can, uh, you know, uh, dig a little deeper about this, this whole history of institutionalization of Sarkar from, you know, 1977 to um, today. Yeah, I don't think that Sarakhune was uh, so much institutionalized at that time. For also, like the Iran Modern Exhibition, um, did not uh, um, did not integrate OVC and. Um, 
for example, in the Sarajone group of artists, because uh, they were not so much in line with the aesthetics uh, that they thought. So, um, and when you look at the, what was really surprising for me, when you look at the Sarajone exhibition catalog, it seems almost odd that they could institutionalize, but I think this is also was also part of this kind of quiet revolution. When you look at the catalog, it looks much more like catalog about material Islamic culture that you would expect from a a historical museum or ethnographic museum or Islamic arts museum. So um, they have a lot of, they uh, displayed a lot of of, um, objects from popular culture, from popular religious culture. At least the exhibition catalog is not so, there's, each artist has one image of his works and it's a it's a male you the generic i can use the generic masculine here because it's a male group of artists and i think that the institutionalization functioned through this discourse of this quiet revolution and the turn to spirit spirituality of the Pahlavi regime and also in terms of nationalization. This is also what's so interesting about Sarajone. Even today, like, I mean, just recently there was this exhibition at Terra Museum of Contemporary Arts about uh, coffee house paintings. And so they um, showed works of the Sarajone artists, which are in their collection. So even the Islamic Republic can easily uh, exhibit Sarajone artists because with their like loose elements and allusions to Islamic um, culture, Iranian culture, it's quite open and you can use it for your political ends. And I think this was the reason why uh, it could be easily institutionalized by the Pahlavi regime. Uh, you mentioned something interesting about the Ovesi. Uh, I think you brought up this book. The Ovesi was dismissed because he was more figural, right? He, he didn't fit in, into the narrative of this abstraction of global modernism narrative, yes. right? Tabrisi and Ovesi were dismissed. And uh, Abbeweed Gray, I mean, this is like there's this article uh, about her collection practice within the uh, broader discourse of uh, Cold War politics, of course. And um, the funny thing is that with her collection, it is it, it's super interesting and I'm very grateful that uh, this collection exists and that there are archives and so on. And I also heard from other scholars who went there and read Tanabuli's letters to Abibit Gray and so on, that they were very useful. But at the uh, same time, this collection repeats a certain narrative. Um, and I'm not sure if it helps to deconstruct this formalist art history because it you know it has this idea of um of modernist art as a universal language that we can find in different countries i mean the collection has also art from pakistan and turkey and so on she traveled uh you know through through like turkey iran that was like itinerary like to india uh, I mean, prior to and she, she she went to Japan and like yeah, yeah exactly like uh, which which is yeah which is fascinating but something uh, uh, is, is like very much like uh, 
a question. Um, perhaps playing the, the historiography is this idea of blatantness, and specifically, it's very much uh, attributed to the to the art, modernist art prior to the Sarkhane. We are talking like, for for example, the modernist in 1950s, uh, like Khus Jangi and so forth. Um, so why why this idea of blatantness and like uh, I think you you in the book you also tackled uh, this problem and how the, this also led to this kind of dismissing the art of 1950s, which is which is like a, I I think I mean from my reading it's it was like a great moment in the history of art and there is you see very much uh, close perhaps. Uh, association between the artist's vision and this idea of social change as, um, and then uh, very much dismissed like as kind of blatant, blatant like imitation of Western modernism uh, by historiographers. Uh, so what we can, uh, you know, uh, think of the art of 1940s and is it like, a, was it like a just, you know, naive imitation or what we uh should think of that art yeah no not at all the problem is modernity the problem is the concept of modernity modernity's colonialism and its arrogance and uh western modernism and modern art and so on and it's such an art history such a at least in Europe, I don't want to talk about the U.S., it's very reactionary, conservative uh, discipline with a lot of goalkeeping, at least. And um, I'm teaching, uh, like, I taught now, I think it was the third time that I taught a seminar at the university about Iranian modernist art. So at the beginning, I start with, okay, what is modern art? And uh, so we looked at definitions, at popular definitions, for example, from the MoMA, from the Tate. When you look at this definition, there are only white men. So, and this is modern art. Still, in the year 2023, the last time I looked was, uh, I think, in June or in July. So I think the problem is uh, this concept of modernity, which is still very much tied to, to the best. Um, at the same time, what I found super interesting was when I researched Iranian Cubism, I learned so much about French Cubism and so many things that are almost like forgotten or not part of the uh, public discourse. For example, uh, Jalil Siapur studied at André Lod's studio and André Lod had uh, thousands of students and Cubism became a global enterprise and traveled around the world. But André Lod is not part of the Cubism art history. So what we remember is Pablo Picasso and Braque and analytical and geometric Cubism, which was um, these categories came by the art dealer and so on. And I think that this belatedness, even in Western art history, there's this idea of belatedness and the idea of uh, male genius and so on and everything else is excluded. So, um, and when I look, this is also why I would encourage everybody to look at the images and not be, oh, uh, a rooster, I've seen Picasso's roosters and that's it. But um, to look um, at the artworks, for example, uh, Jalil Siapur's Seinab uh, Khatun, it's so rich with the poem and so on. And 
when we say it's belatedness, what should we do with it? It's not productive. It doesn't lead us anywhere. We don't gain any new experiences. So um, for me, it's not a point to talk about artworks or this idea who came first, who came second. I think this idea of artistic progress is very much tied to maybe, I don't know, Ernst Gombrich and so on. But um, yeah, it's nothing that me as a researcher, it's not very interesting or intriguing for me as a researcher. Yeah, perhaps Gombrich, it's interesting you mentioned Gombrich because this this kind of idea of the belatedness, I think in, especially the, the scholars from Iran, not, not just Western scholars, like the Green Park boss, and we know like Green Park was influenced by Gombrich and he's very much like, you know, perhaps one of the early figures like arguing about about this blatantness and then later on like even like contemporary scholar like Siamak Delzende again the same idea although Siamak Delzende's view is post-colonial like I mean in the book his books he argues like from post-colonial perspective he's um, deconstructing the history but still like he's you know uh, very much thinking that this is a blatant uh, imitation uh which, which, I mean, the resistance of this argument is very interesting for, for me. Perhaps the one reason is, as you mentioned, like earlier, like the lack of archive. So yeah, this, the resilience of this idea of blatantness is interesting, specifically about the art in 1950s. Um, uh, still, you know. But I would rather ask, for example, why does somebody choose in the 1950s? Why does somebody choose Cubist way of expression? What does it mean? And if it's belated or not, that's another question. This is maybe something that the art market can decide. But um, for me, it was interesting. What does Cubist language offer to Siapur? And when I go back to André Lode and I go back to French Cubism, which was so tied to finding a leftist national French identity. And um, this is what you can find with Horus uh, Changi, also with Nima Yushich, who was very close tied to French symbolism and the symbolists and the Cubists were working together and they were all inspired by uh, Bergson. And also, so, and I would um, like this uh, uh, Bergson in the Iranian context would be like a super interesting research topic because um, I can find him again and again. He's like, um, yeah, uh, you see, um, and so on. And I think this is uh, more important to ask, why are they using it? What does it offer? What does it provide? And in terms of Nima Yushich, they started to live in a more democratic society in a time of openness and so on. And so Cubism was for him a language to address the topics of modernization, democratization, art as a social means and so on. That's amazing, specifically the idea of Cubism. Uh, Ziapur was mocked during the time in Iran too by the other artists like Hey, this is this is old. Uh, this the, and and his response, I think, in 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 uh, Horus Jangi's uh, article essay called uh, "Painting" uh, is interesting. He he, ta- he talks about like yeah, we I know that there are other art forms. Cubism is not something new. 
uh and the, and he shows that he's uh in, i mean his knowledge of like surrealism and other mind he knows uh to some extent yeah and... he's not a super fan of cubism but he's like okay i know surrealism and i know all the other movements but yeah. uh cubism is the least uh, <laughs> or is the yeah, yeah. one is... and that's what fascinating like in in one of like because that was like five consequent uh uh you know a publication of the same uh, so it was like in five part and in one of the part i think and maybe last part I'm, I'm not sure uh but uh he he's argued that cubism is important because cubism uh has uh, you know can lead to the class consciousness i was like what <laughs> and, yes, and the problem exactly. with surrealism is there's some you know disconnection here i was like why <laughs> what he's talking like yeah it's, it's it was amazing uh and I mean, of course, I don't know how this exchange with André Lode really was. And I heard that André Lode was not a very political person and so on. And this would need way more research. I mean, I don't know, there's this book about André Lode and his international students, which was published. And there's also one chapter about Siapur. It would be super interesting to dive deeper, to go to France, to go uh, to uh, André Lode's archives and see if there is something from Iranian artists. But yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's much work to do, Kavi. <laughs> yeah, there are lots to do and lots of archive haven't yet <laughs> explored. Yeah. Uh, my last question, perhaps, because there are lots of things in your book about like the relationship you mentioned between like Nima as this like prominent, right, modernist uh, poet uh, who associated with also this idea of new poetry and on the other hand like the avant-garde artists like Ziyapur who wanted this idea of this very much uh, uh, you know in, invested this idea of new painting uh, and the fascinating thing is like like uh, in seeing Ziyapur's writing like Ziyapur is very much uh, talking uh, about painting as if about the poetry and he talks about like a one like paint like Nima. I was like, oh, this is interesting because like they're very much like close association, like even like entanglement to some extent between like art, a painting and poetry, which you don't expect like in the modernism, like at least like from like this perspective of medium specificity. Uh, but is here something interesting, like what we can make of this kind of like, you know, relationship uh, in the early, you know, uh, modernist movement in uh, Iran. I think in particular in Iranian culture, there is not this strong distinction between poetry and art and so on. It's so entangled and it's so close connected. And this is also what you see in uh, Chalil Siapur's paintings and writings. And when he's painting the rooster that you can somehow connect it and his whole idea to Sufism and uh, the conference of the birds to Attar's conference of the birds, which like uh, Nima turns this... Um, uh, tropes from Sufism into political metaphors and so on. And I think um, this is really interesting to uh, further explore. Also, there are some like Jalil Siapur and Nima Yushich are very prominent examples, but 
For example, Manusher Shaybani, there is, it's difficult to find something about him, but he was very close to Nima and the painter. And um, yeah, so I think this is just a starting point. And I was, I'm always very happy to see that uh, so many people are working on these topics. Also like I went to conference and saw that there is a whole new generation of PhD students who all kind of work on Iranian modernist arts and who can also delve deeper into the topics. But um, yeah, I think that these interconnections are really important to gain new insights into yeah, modernism and so on, especially because we're missing archives. Is there any uh, book for a near future when it can be uh, published or any plan? Yeah, I mean, um, <clears throat> the thing is, I'm an art historian and in the German speaking country, you're not supposed to do your postdoc on a similar topic. So um, I have to move on from Iran uh, to other topics. But um, now I'm working, yeah, because this topic of uh, secularism and secularity is something that um, that comes up again and again in all kinds that I do um, when I uh, work about uh, artists from Iran and also like it's not about being religious but more in a cultural sense and um but i will move on more to the contemporary to contemporary art practices great um thank you for coming on to, to the podcast thank you very much thank you for taking thank time. you for the invitation <laughs>